Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Good evening and welcome to Club Book with Lauren Fox. My name is Stacey Hendren. I'm manager of the Northtown branch of Anoka County Library, which is in Blaine. I have the great honor of hosting our featured guest and moderating questions tonight. So before I introduce Lauren properly, allow me to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing her to you. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency made possible through the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Anoka County is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. Without further ado, Lauren Fox is an acknowledged master of the family novel. Readers enjoyed their first taste of her achingly funny take on marriage, friendship, and domesticity in Still Life with Husband, a literary debut that New York Times heralded as the arrival of an immensely gifted writer. Fox's follow-up, Friends Like Us and Days of Awe, justified the praise. Her latest, out February 2nd, is Send for Me. In this time-jumping work of historical fiction, a woman discovers a cache of old letters from her Jewish grandmother that sheds light on her family's struggles and fate during, Nazi, during the rise of Nazism in Germany. Booklist touts Send For Me as a thoughtful, character-driven exploration of the unbreakable bonds of motherhood, which deftly moves between generations as Fox illuminates the way that choices echo through, through the lives of those who come after. Send For Me is also semi-autobiographical in nature inspired by heirloom letters held by her own family. After a short presentation and reading by our guest, we'll have time for audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook and our tech manager will route them to me. If you prefer to ask a query more anonymously, you can also send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. Please join me in welcoming Lauren. Thank you. 
Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. Um, so I'll start just, um, I'll do a little presentation about the book and I'll start just by reading the first page just to kind of get us in the space of the book. Um, the first line of the book is, is from one of the letters and then it begins. I can hardly speak. It starts with the panic, the sound of sharp knocking, the pounding on Annalise's door, a crash in her skull, jolting her from sleep, they're coming. Her heart slams and she sits up, blind in the darkness. Her arms reach out. Where is the baby? Fear floods her lungs, she's drowning. They're coming, breathe, hold the baby close, keep her quiet. Is there something else in the churning flood of terror? In the squeeze of panic, the slightest slackening, relief? She's been waiting so long for this moment, dread her constant companion, and now it's here. Whatever horror is about to befall her, she won't have to fear it any longer. In the room, silent now, she strains to hear. Her heart is pounding so hard, her body is thrumming, her hands trembling. Is that her husband next to her, snoring softly? Is that the warm, reassuring shape of him? They will take him too. They'll take all of it, everything and everyone she has ever loved, in an instant, a flash. Years will pass, a long, surprising slant of light, and this terror will abate. She will pick her daughter up from school, stand in her kitchen with her hands on her hips, sip from a glass in the evening, slip under smooth sheets. But this will always be her frozen moment, the definition of her days. They will always be pounding on the door in the middle of the night. They will always be coming. Send for Me is about four generations of women. It begins in Germany on the cusp of World War II, and it moves forward in time to present-day Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The book is about a Jewish family that is torn apart by the rising anti-Semitism in Germany in the late 1930s. It's about the people who got out of Germany just in time and the ones who were unable to leave. It's about the ways we are connected to one another and how we love each other. It's about mothers and daughters and generational trauma, the ways our family stories are passed down to us, not always overtly, but sometimes as the complicated and unspoken undercurrents that we inherit. The novel tells the story of Annalise, a young mother who, with her husband and daughter, flees Germany in 1938, but is forced to leave the rest of her family behind. The story jumps ahead to present-day Milwaukee, where Annalise's granddaughter, Claire, is a young woman trying to pry herself apart from her family's history. She's a little aimless and unsure of herself, deeply connected to her own mother, and uncertain of how to live an independent life, weighed down by the heavy burden of loss that in some ways defines her family. It's a personal story for me. It's close to my heart because it's based on my own family. My mother and grandparents left Germany in 1938. They left most of their family behind and settled in Milwaukee. I grew up in a really close family, very loving and connected, but always with some sense that there were things I couldn't talk about, questions I wasn't supposed to ask. I've written about this before, but I remember standing in my, parents, in my grandparents' kitchen, gathering up all my courage and asking them if they ever wanted to go back to Germany. My grandmother stood with her back to me cooking and didn't say anything. And my grandfather, after a long while, just quietly said no. So I knew about German history, of course. I knew about the history of the Holocaust. I knew where my family came from, but I never really understood what it meant for us in my own family. I was in my 20s when I stumbled upon the letters. My grandparents had been living with us when I was in high school and college, and they had recently died, and all of their belongings were in my parents' basement. So one day I was going through their things, and I found a box full of letters. I still remember the moment, finding the box, the letters, a little wooden box of letters wrapped in a pink ribbon. The letters were in German, in a script I couldn't read, but I knew I had stumbled on something important and meaningful, 
a key that would unlock something for me, although at the time I wasn't sure what. I was in graduate school at the University of Minnesota at the time, and I found a professor there who took a personal interest in my family's story and was able to help me. Every week I would go to his office with two or three of the letters and he would read them out loud into a little tape recorder and I would take them home and transcribe them. It was like hearing my great-grandmother's voice. Sometimes I almost expected a letter in the mailbox from her. She wasn't trying to tell me a story, but in her voice, I heard the echoes of my mom and my grandma, a worry-soaked love, and I heard her anguish and her desire to be reunited with her loved ones, wanting to be able to hold her granddaughter. They were a long and exhausting lament, coupled with lots of practical concerns, like what should we do with the piano? You forgot your red dress. Should we sell the pots and pans? As I said, I was in graduate school at the time, and I made this my project. I approached it as a memoir and tried to weave the letters through with my own memories and observations. But it didn't really work because I was in my 20s and I think I didn't just, I didn't quite have enough to say. I hadn't lived long enough maybe. But I believed so strongly and I still do that in a world where there are Holocaust deniers, we have such a strong and specific obligation to tell the truth. So after I got my MFA, I moved back to Milwaukee with my husband and I abandoned this project. I started writing other things. I like to say I wrote some lighter novels about betrayal and infidelity. But of course, this story stayed with me and wouldn't leave me alone. For years, my husband would kind of nudge me and say, when are you going to return to that book? And I would say confidently, never. But of course, it was cooking in my brain the whole time, simmering on a low heat. I was finally inspired to go back to it a few years ago when um, we learned about the Muslim ban that the previous administration had instituted. And I felt like I was so struck by it, and as we all were, I think, but so sort of jarred and triggered by it. I felt like we're making, the past is always with us and we're making some of the same, the same mistakes. And I suddenly felt like this story that I have to tell is newly relevant and it's time for me to tell it. So I figured out after some prodding from more than one person who reminded me that I had already written three novels, that this story would work better as fiction, which cracked the whole thing open for me. I just, I realized I could stay true to my family's story I could use the letters that I had found. And in fact, I do weave them through the novel and they're word for word. I, I didn't change any of those, but I could stay true. I, so I could stay true to my great grandmother's words, but I could fully invent these characters. For example, the, bake, the, the, the novel, much of the novel takes place in a bakery. Um, my grandparents owned a butcher shop. And I just felt like if I'm gonna be spending years working on this novel as a lifelong vegetarian, I'm gonna, I'm gonna change the butcher shop to a bakery. <laughs> it was much more pleasant. Um, I did lots of research on the time period. I read a lot of history books. I um, had gone to Germany with my family and visited the town where my grandmother was from and um, where, my, where my mom was born and then the other small town where my grandfather was from. This was before I really knew I was um, working on this book. It was just kind of, it was in my head at the time but I didn't really fully realize I was gonna be writing this book. So I call that research now in retrospect, I didn't intend it to be research but I just, we were there in Germany and I was just soaking in the sounds and the sights and paying attention to the way the light fell and um, the smells that surrounded me. So that was um, one way that I kind of immersed myself in, um, and I did, I did other research and um, that all gave me the confidence to embrace this story as historical fiction. And I loved doing the historical research, which surprised me. I loved it when I had the most specific question, like what kind of shoes would a woman be wearing in 1937? And I could find the answer. I began to understand these characters from the inside and the outside. And in that way, I was able to tell my family's story without limiting myself. I could invent a character, for example, who closely resembled my grandmother. But of course, I could never know what my grandmother was actually thinking as she said goodbye to her mother in 1938. So as a fiction writer, I could give her traits and thoughts and ideas. And that in that way, her story came to life. 
So after a few years of work, I handed in a draft of this book to my editor thinking I was done, but she felt like a piece of the story was missing, which ironically was the contemporary story, the story I had tried to write while I was in grad school. Um, I found myself reluctant to go back to it. I don't know why, but once I realized that my editor was right, I reconnected with that piece of the story, which was of course the part I felt the closest to. Um, and by this time I had two daughters of my own. So it felt like I had a totally different perspective than I'd had 25 years ago as a mother and a daughter um, on this girl who was trying to figure out who she was in relation to her family's history, trying to figure out how to live in the world, not to escape the story her family gave her, but to both embrace it and transcend it. So that's my, that's the overall, that's the overview. That's the, the presentation of the book. And now I'm really happy to have a conversation with Stacy and take questions and Oh, thank you so much, Lauren, for that. It's so wonderful to hear just the, the connections with your family. And oh, mm, just imagine the, the silence when your grandfather said no. And, oh, and I love that in your writing, too. Just the descriptions were so beautiful, achingly beautiful. <laughs> so, um, so one of the questions um, I wanted to start with was just a big congratulations. So congratulations on the Read with Jenna selection. Um, so one of my colleagues shared that she purchased the book specifically because of the Read for Jenna, and she's so glad that she did. So will you tell us a little bit about how you heard that big news and what does it mean to be a featured author? Um, we want to live vicariously through you. <laughs> I want to live vicariously through me. It was such an amazing like this is my fourth book. So I know kind of both sides of how, how, what it is to be a fiction writer and, you know, so many amazing books come out and all at the same time. And so it's really, really hard for one book to get um, a little bit of spotlight and attention. And Jenna Bush is a champion of contemporary literary fiction. I found out my agent called me, actually my agent and my editor were like, dueling to call me my agent left a message on my cell phone and no my editor left a message on my cell phone and my agent called me on my landline and she reached me and she this was like right after thanksgiving and she was like don't go to your computer stay right where you are i have something to tell you and um i had been doing dishes which kind of in retrospect was ironic because i feel like the book is so much about domestic life and so i was i was like my hands were wet and i was like what's going on and she said you're a read with jenna pick and i i think and so i was like screaming and dancing around and um my kids were in virtual school and they were they came downstairs like what's going on and she was like don't tell anyone don't tell your daughters and they were standing they were both standing in my doorway like what's going on so of course they i told them <laughs> i had to tell my mom i had to tell my parents and, but it was a, a huge seat and my husband, <laughs> other than that, nobody knew it was, and I'm so, I, it was like two months of almost three months of keeping the secret. It was so hard. And I was so like, it was just the most exciting thing that's ever happened in my career. It was really, really fantastic. Cause you know, she just, she just shines her light on these books and you know, they're going to get more attention than they would get otherwise. So. Oh, wonderful. How exciting. Yeah. <laughs> So some more questions about the book. Um, so as it jumped from different times, did you find have an easier time slipping into some of the four protagonists' time periods and cultures than others? So I'd suspect that the generation closest to you, and you kind of mentioned this, mm -hmm. um, close to your own would be easier to write about than about women in Nazi Germany. But, but if you could tell us about that. So the story is loosely based on the, the, the parallels are, so my great grandmother, 
Frida, and there's a character in the book named Clara. This will just confuse you, but I'm going to say it anyway. And then my grandmother, Ilsa, is kind of the parallel to Annalise in the book. And then my mom and Ruth, and then I'm the, the character who closely most closely resembles me is Claire in the book. But it is fiction. And um, as I said, I had written this memoir that I wasn't pleased with. And so actually, it wasn't really Claire's story that was easiest to slip into. I mean, once I started writing it, and once I sort of finally realized that that was going to be an important part of the novel, and once I embraced it, I had a good time with it. But it surprised me how much I love doing the research. And, and, when, and when I felt sort of a little bit confident that I understood the, the time period, um, I really loved writing Annalise. She just was, I just felt like I was imagining her and having a conversation with her. She, I think was, I had the most, I mean, I don't know if fun is the right word because it's a hard story to write, but I had the most, it was most satisfying to write her. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then so um, why did, sorry, I'm just jumping back to that um, excitement of going to the, um, um, doing your research. You talk about doing the research and going to Germany. Um, beyond the research that you did at the U of M, how have libraries influenced you? And what kind of research did you did? I'm throwing questions together. So you <laughs> okay. did some of your research and translation at the University yeah. of Minnesota. What other kind of research did you do? So years ago, I had um, visited the Holocaust Museum and the, the library that's attached to the museum in DC. Um, before I knew, this was like right when I was when I was working on the memoir version of the story. So I spent some time there um, researching the specifics of what actually happened to um, members of my family. And um, the other, most of the other research I did was just like, just reading as much as I could about the time period. Um, there's a book that was really influential for me called um, Between Dignity and Despair, um, about specifically about women in Germany in the years leading up wow. to the war. Um, I learned so much about, I mean, I guess I, I, I just, I didn't know that um, the project of the Nazis in the early part of their um, reign was to squeeze Jews out of economic life in Germany. So they really wanted Jews to leave Germany. And it, so it was sort of a different experience than it was in the rest of Europe, because the, you know, once, once their, once their project had reached the rest of Europe, the idea was just to like eliminate the population. But but it made sense in my family, in relation to my family story, that what they were trying to do in the earlier part of the 1930s was to just make life, daily life, unlivable for them. So I really used that part of my research and kind of really poured that into the novel. Just the way they were squeezed out and made to feel uncomfortable and unwanted and economically, you know, their lives became impossible so that they, so that they would leave. Mm -hmm. So tying to that, um, how was the process of writing this work of historical fiction across multiple time periods different than your previous novels? So my previous three novels are contemporary fiction, but I didn't know I was writing, specifically writing historical fiction. I, um, I just knew that I, was, that I was trying to tell this story. So, I mean, it was a different process because it involved more research um, and less actual observation of daily life, which is sort of how I accumulate details for the contemporary fiction, just looking around and taking notes. So it was different that way, but it was more like I was just kind of, um, I knew I wanted to tell this story. So I was kind of like the historical part of it was just like kind of filling in the blanks and setting the scene. Oh, wow. 
did this, did writing this book change any of your feelings about your family or their experiences? Um, it didn't change any of my feelings about my family, but I feel like I got to know the outside forces that were, you know, putting pressure on these people I didn't know. And well, I guess my, my grandparents as well, but before I, before they were my grandparents, so it didn't, um, it just illuminated, um, it illuminated their context, you know, like I still, you know, they were just incredibly loving people who loved us and didn't really want to talk about where they had come from. So it just allowed me to um, create the story. It didn't, I definitely, you know, I, my feelings about them are the same, but I didn't understand the extent of the external pressures they were under. Wow. Has your, has your not entirely fictional story inspired any other, ho- any Holocaust survivors to get in touch with you or share their stories? So um, in the couple of weeks since the book came out, I've, I've been getting lots of emails um, from people. And I, it, interestingly, the, the personal stories that people want to share are, are a little more, they're a little broader than I thought they would be. They're not specifically, they haven't all specifically been stories about the Holocaust, but they've been like a lot of like immigration stories. And I think um, what people seem to be connecting to is the, um, the sense of that, like the sense of that history and how it's passed down. Not necessarily, it hasn't been all Jewish people and it hasn't been all Holocaust stories at all, but it's just been a lot of like, these are the hardships that my ancestors went through and this is you know why I, how I connected to your story. So I think that's kind of cool. Oh, wow. Can you talk a little bit more about those actions and emotions that were passed down with generations? Um, one of the statements in your book was the habit of furtive whispering that will never go away. And I, that just struck me as something that keeps going. And then just fear and love. Can you talk about how you use those emotions and about the everything that was passed down? So, um, so much of this book, I, I've been talking about it for a couple of weeks now. And I just realized this like on Friday in the conversation that um, so much of this book is like a conversation with my great grandmother's letters. You know, like she would say, I would read something. I really metabolize these letters. I, I, I have, they've been a part of me for, you know, 25 years. So she would say something like um, in one of her letters, she says, why is that poor child crying so? And I know what she's talking about because um, my, my mom has a picture of herself as a two-year-old on the ship saw, you know, she's holding her parents' hands and she's wailing. So I knew the picture she was referring to. So I then was um, able to create a scene in the book where um, they're, on the, they're on the ship on the way to America and um, <clears throat> Annalise pulls Ruth away from a little friend she's made and Ruth starts sobbing and then somebody wants to take a picture of the family. So like, um, I don't know if this is exactly answering your question, but so much of the, like the, the, little pieces of the letters became broader scenes in the book. And I was able to sort of kind of use the nonfiction to create the fictional scene and then that kind of like ping back to the nonfiction. And so all of this, I feel like is part of what gets handed down to us. Mm, Wow. When, um, so did your mom read the book? What did she, and what did she (laughs) think about the stories? She's read the book. I think four times now she'll be like, I'm reading it again. I'm crying again. Like she's, you know, they're, they're delighted and happy. And I think she feels, I think she thinks that, I think she's happy that this story is being told. Like, I think she is, she's so connected to the story, but even more so she's just connected to the people who raised her. And, you know, so I think, I think it's a good thing that 
there's a generation, there's a there's another generation of distance between the story and me as the writer. Like I think she's, I don't think that this was the story she could have told. So I think she, I think she's glad I'm telling it. Mm, wonderful. So um, can you share a little bit about your path to becoming a writer and maybe something that isn't necessarily in the blurb that we get to read? Um, I can tell you so many things about my path to becoming a writer. I feel like it's still, it's ongoing because every, after every book I write, I think, okay, that's it. <laughs> I'm done. I'm, I'm not a writer anymore. <laughs> like I think that the path to becoming a writer is um, endless and I'm working really hard on like not having that voice in my head that says, you know, you are actually, that's it, you're done. <laughs> so um, I'll tell you a couple of things. I, I wrote a book between my first novel and my second novel, but well, like a hundred pages of book, but I was pregnant with my second daughter at the time. So all the characters, and I, for some reason decided I didn't need to outline this book. So all the characters do in this book is sit around complaining about how tired they are. So that book is not, that book is in the, is in a drawer. <laughs> um, let's see. I, um, I sent my first book out to probably 50 agents before one decided to take me on and represent me. So the path to becoming a writer is, is crowded with failure. <laughs> and like, I don't know, I don't know if I would do it. I don't know if I could do it again. I just kept, this was like before, like pre-internet. So I would just send out the query and the, and like 10 pages of the novel. And then like a month later, it would come back to me rejected and I'd send it out again. And it went on forever. So that's, wow. that's a piece, that's a big piece of my path to becoming a writer. Um, I had an English teacher in high school who said, Lauren, some people are writers and some people are readers and you are a reader. <laughs> so my whole, <laughs> so that's another piece of the path, proving her wrong. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, <laughs> this kind of leads into just talking about what, um, what writers, since you're a reader as well, what writers influenced you as what, what did you read that influenced you as a writer? Um, I, so I don't really think I was a voracious reader until kind of when I was a young adult. I mean, I read a lot as a kid, but I really didn't become the reader that I am now until I was um, in my late teens, early twenties. And um, my one, um, the, the kind of, I had a, a floundering year between college and graduate school. And I was back home in Milwaukee, like not knowing what I was supposed to be doing. And I went to the library um, near my parents' house and I started at A in the fiction section. And I was like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing with myself or how I'm, where I'm gonna go from here, but I'm gonna start. And I started at A and read, I think I read all the way to H. I mean, not every single book on the shelf, but I was just like, reading just saved me. Um, I. Let's see. I'm, I'll tell you who I'm, what I'm reading right now, and then I'll have, and then I'll take a minute and think about who has influenced me. So many writers have influenced me, but um, right now I'm reading *Monogamy* by Sue Miller, which is a just a something completely different from what I've been working on. I I read um, *We Were the Lucky Ones* by Georgia Hunter, which was um, a book I recommended because um, on the Today Show with with when I was on last week with *Read with Jenna*. <laughs> um, <laughs> such a weird thing to say. Um, so that, because that book and mine have a lot of thematic overlap and also it's just a, a beautiful book. Um, what else am I reading right now? I've got um, 
uh, I read two books that um, haven't come out yet because they were written by friends of mine. One is called The Cape Doctor by Ellen Levy. That's coming out in the summer and it's historical fiction. And then um, my friend and co-member of my writing group here in Milwaukee, Anurala Rajakar has written a YA novel called American Betia. So I just um, reread that. Um, I like to have one book on the, I like to have one book upstairs and one book downstairs. So I always have two books going at once. So um, <laughs> let's see. And who have, who's influenced me? Um, William Trevor, for sure. He's a, mostly his short stories, but also his, the novel, the story of Lucy Galt. Um, he's an Irish, well, he, he died a couple years ago, but he's an Irish short story writer. I really, my short stories are my first love. Um, who else? Uh, I'll think about it and I'll remember in like five minutes. So go, <laughs> could you go to the next question and then I'll of come course. back. <laughs> so there is a question that kind of relates to this. Um, are you a fan of World War II era historical fiction generally? And did any of books of that sort inspire you? You know, not really. It's not, I'm kind of am now. And I, um, I'm going to read The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna just because I want to, but it really, um, I feel like I was new to the genre when I started writing it. Oh, so wow. it's not, yeah. I mean, I'm much, I, I really love contemporary literary fiction. I really wasn't a, a historical fiction aficionado. Mm, so much, so much range you're showing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just feel like I, it's my job to read as much as it is to write. You know, like, I feel like I'm always in conversation with other writers in my head. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I'm all like, it feels like if I can grab an hour a day to read, that's just the work I do. Like, I really, it's part of being a writer. <laughs> and a librarian. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned the University of Minnesota Libraries, and you mentioned that you visit the Milwaukee Library. It saved you. How else have libraries influenced you as a writer and a reader? Well, as a writer who has never made very much money, if I um, spent all the money that I would like to on books, I would be completely broke. So I use the local library here all the time. Um, they're doing a great job during the pandemic. They'll do, um, they're doing curbside. So I just type in what I want and then drive over and get it. It's been, they've been amazing. I think all libraries have just risen to the occasion um, and have, have proven have have illuminated how crucial they are to our communities but I couldn't I would just be sunk without the library here and um when the pandemic started I couldn't I think like a lot of people I couldn't concentrate I mean I was watching bad reality tv and that was like the most I could focus and then I read um Lily King's Writers and Lovers have you read that I haven't yet yeah so that was the first book and um, that was a library book it was the first book I read that like brought me back to myself you know Ooh, I'll have to get that one on my list now <laughs> after I finish um, all of yours. <laughs> so, so yeah, the, the, um, I'm a, I'm an avid user of our local library. Oh, that's so wonderful to hear. <laughs> so jumping a little bit back into send for me, um, there was a question that said, is anyone else in your family attached to these heirloom letters? Did you have someone like that to bounce feelings and ideas off of? My mom, they're her, it's her story as well. And she, um, I think she would have, it was hard for her, but I sometimes would offer her the opportunity to listen to the, or to read my transcription or to listen to the transcribed letters. And it was hard for her. She was closer to it than I was, but um, you know, she, and I, um, and like I said, she couldn't read them because they were written in this old fashioned German script, but she's very attached to them. And I mean, it was her grandmother and the grandma she never knew. 
Oh, I'll show you. I have I have a photocopy of the letters. You'll oh, see. Wonderful. You can't. Um, you can't. They're like. You can't make them out. They're like. I think her handwriting is beautiful, but they don't look like letters, right? They look sort of like scratches up and down on the page. So yeah, that's. Mm, yeah, I have some old letters of my grandma's in Norwegian, and yeah, it's amazing. It is. It's an amazing artifact, but she um. Like I've said this before, but she, my great grandmother wasn't trying to tell a coherent story. You know, she wasn't like, this is my, this is my legacy. She was, you know, throughout most of the letters, they were written between 1938 and 1941. She thought they would, they, she thought they could leave. Like it was her, you know, and then the letters kind of, the desperation in the letters increases as the years go by. So um, it's not like a, it's not, she wasn't telling a story. She was like, you know, begging my grandmother to do what she could to get out. And she was trying to, you know, talk about her daily life. And at the same time saying like, you need to do this and this and this. And, you know, so they're more like, they're, they're, they're unusual that way. Wow. Oh. Oh. So um, quick plug for club book, your faves, um, Lily King and Sue Moller. Sue Miller, uh -huh. both have club book podcasts available in our archive. So if people wanted to check those out and this session will be archived as well. Going back to writing, how is the process and career of writing different during COVID? Well, my kids are in school from home. So, I mean, it's so different. I think um, just I, as a writer, really cultivate boredom for myself and in my life and so because it, I feel like it gives me the mental space to be to like use my imagination and just to go places um COVID for all of us I mean it's been a, a year now like it just it just descended like a dark cloud just descended it was really been really distracting and um you know we've all been like in a place of fear and anxiety and um so it's been it's been a challenge for me to get back to work. And my kids, like I said, my kids are here and they're great and they know to leave me alone while I'm working, but they're also, they also need things. Like it's hard, it's been really hard for them too. You know, we were talking earlier, we both have teenage daughters and, you know, I wanna be here for them during this unprecedented, you know, difficult time. So my routine has been sort of out the window, but I'm taking notes and trying to remember that I am a writer. So hopefully I'll, I'll come back to it. But I think everybody's in the same boat. It's been really hard. It's just been so hard to concentrate. Right. How was your routine? You say you have your routine. How was your routine pre-COVID? Um, I used the hours that the that my children were in school to write. I would just sit down at my, I mean, ha, as if, but I would sit down at my computer at eight and, you know, get up at three and also get up a million times between eight and three to like make coffee and do the dishes and stuff. But that was my, like, nobody was in the house. And so that was my writing time. And I had this, um, this application on my computer called freedom that would disconnect me from the internet. I didn't always use it, but that was a good thing to just to like get to like remove the playground of the internet from my, from my computer. Oh, I'll have to look into that. Yeah. <laughs> like you can't do it. It's really difficult to, to do it yourself. It's nice to have a, a program that switches off the internet. Oh, wow. Um, so thinking about that, thinking about um, just the fear and anxiety that we're experiencing during COVID. And I, I mean, don't want to compare it to the fear and anxiety of Nazism, but 
but something in the story when you get to Claire and she's talking about that fear of getting into a relationship and everything, how, um, I mean, how, how does that, I don't want to ask a too personal question, but, but is that, did you feel that, um, that kind of string coming from your, your grandmother as you grew up? from my mom, you know, and I think, well, okay, I think obviously it's not, nothing is, it's not comparable to what people are going through in Germany in the thirties, but we are really um, like the sense of missing one another, the sense of missing the people we love. You know, I haven't seen my parents in a year. I mean, I see them, they drive, I live 10 minutes away and, you know, they'll drive over every day and like wave from their car, but, you know, um, missing people we love is, I think, um, kind of tap, taps into that. That's the familiar feeling. Um, but to answer your question, um, the that part of the story, the part of the story that where Claire feels this um, intense connection and obligation to her family. I mean, I, that's you know ripped from the headlines. I definitely felt that and have felt it all my life. And Claire, without giving away anything about the book, her she's she is fiction and um, fiction. The, the she is fictionalized and um, her story. Is different from mine. She goes. Uh, she goes down a different path. I mean, I live, like I said, I live ten minutes away from my parents, and um, I always, I used to joke when I lived in Minneapolis that all I wanted to do was um, move home, have a couple of babies, and hand them over to my parents, which I did. <laughs> it's an excellent. It's 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 so much fun to hand them to the grandparents and get a little oh my break. Gosh. Yeah. And also they, I always used to say, I mean, they're older, my, my kids are older now, but I used to say they were in, in better hands with my parents than they were with me. <laughs> Safer, more closely watched, better fed. <laughs> but yeah, so, so it, the short answer to that is yes, I definitely felt the, the, the pull. So we have another question coming from the, from the Facebook group. Your contemporary fiction feels autobiographical at times. Isabel Moore in Days of Awe seems so real to me. If you're not, if not yourself, did you base her on anyone? I mean, I, I can, I don't remember. No, I, um, <laughs> yes. I mean, every, I think especially when a writer uses first person, which I did in my, my three contemporary novels, um, it's easy to to think this must be this first person narrator must be the author. Of course she is and she isn't. And you know, she's I'm writing sort of through my own eyes and and giving my observations to this character and her voice is kind of my voice. So, you know, but it's also the pleasure of being a fiction writer is just creating characters and creating, you know, there's always like there are always people talking to me in my head. <laughs> you know, that, that's like the the that's what I find the most fun about writing fiction. You know, you can, the characters, the main characters are little pieces of everybody I know and love. You know, when I wrote my first, um, when I wrote my first book, there's a, a mother character in the book. And I was so worried that my mom would read it and be like, this is me, you can't publish this. But she was like, Lauren, I know, of course I know it's fiction. Like it's, there's just, you know, that's that's the line. Like it's it's fiction and it's nonfiction and everybody's a little piece of me in my in my books. Fun, fun. That I just love that. <laughs> um, I, I really loved the phrase that you said earlier. Was it um, curated boredom? Said I think you said 
That's but making I, sure that you have time for your <laughs> time for your imagination to create these characters. Yeah. Another person asked, did you write every day? I never get too worked up about whether or not I write every day. I try to, but some days, like my daughter quoted this back to me the other day because my husband is um, working on a book as well. And she's like, dad, some days are three page days. Some days are three sentence days. <laughs> I was like, oh, how did you, oh, that's me. <laughs> You know, I think, I, I think some days it's just really hard and some days it comes easier, but I'm always thinking and taking notes. I think the most, somebody asked me for my, like mo my best advice on, you know, process and how to be a writer. And really um, it's that I try to live as a writer in the world. Like I try to observe and pay attention and, you know, not let the the daily tasks that we're all confronted with overwhelm the part of me that's a writer and that's paying attention. I completely forgot what the original question was. Do I write every day? So no, not really, but I try to. <laughs> Another process question came through. What say have you had in choosing cover art for your books? Oh, I love that question because I love this cover so much. Um, oh, you're holding it up. I was just about to hold it up. It's, um, it's, I have, they say I have, some say in the cover and they like will send me cover suggestions but I secretly don't think I do um the original cover of send for me um was a bakery case I wish I had a picture of it or like a mock-up of it but it was a an arm it was kind of it was a really cool painting it was like an arm um and so it was like a sort of like a cut off torso that sounds bad but it was like half of a body and um the arm extending down into a a, a case of really yummy looking pastries. And I don't know if I loved it. It was a really, it was a beautiful painting and I don't know if it made sense for my book. And then at Knopf, my publishing house, they sent, they started sending out the book to the sales reps and they all came back and said, this cover doesn't really work. The book is historical fiction and the cover doesn't really work. So they went back to the drawing board and came back with this cover. And I, when I saw this cover, I went like that just, it just feels so, this cover feels really right to me. So. Um, and the covers of the cover of Days of Awe was um, like a, the original cover was a pointillist painting of a woman's face. Like you almost, when you were really close to it, you couldn't see that it was a face. And then if you pulled away, you could. And also that went out into the world a little bit and people didn't really respond to it. And I think that um, somebody high up at Barnes and Noble was like, you need a different cover. So <laughs> they went, I mean, so I think there's like interplay between um, the like the heart of the book and the way that the publisher wants it to be received in the world. So I don't have that much say, but other people do. <laughs> yeah, well, I love I love this cover too. I think the the scene where Clara and Ruth, the last time they're together, is yes. one of the most powerful in the book. And every time I look at this, I just like get that feeling like, oh, I just want to cry and I want to hug my mom and I want to hug my grandma. <laughs> So yes. yeah, that's that the cover feels like it is um, just taken from that scene in the book that just felt like a stroke of good luck to get that cover. So we do have a not a question. Um, not somebody a question. wanted, wanted to share, um, they read Days of Awe last summer and have told many it was my top read in 2020. So they just wanted to let you know that it was one of their top reads. Thanks. And then And then another one, what do you miss most about Minnesota? as a person or as a writer? 
Oh, I miss Minnesota so much. I have so many friends from the creative writing program that I'm still really close to. I miss, my husband and I met there and sometimes we talk about this, like, do we miss Minneapolis or do we miss being in our 20s in Minneapolis? You know, I miss mm. the, it's a really, um, Milwaukee feels like a quieter city to me. And I don't know, maybe that's because I have kids and so my life is quieter, but I miss how lively Minneapolis felt to me then. And um, I miss the full dedication I was able to have while I was in Minneapolis to being a writer. I mean, I was in grad school for, I think longer than I should have been, but I was fully, you know, that's what I was when I was in Minneapolis. It was like how I was figuring out, you know, what the rest of my life was gonna look like. So I missed that, that, whole, that whole sense of myself that I had when I was in Minneapolis. And I really loved the, um, like the book community. The, the, do you remember The Hungry Mind? That was the bookstore in St. Paul. That was that was where all the like cool book events were when we were there. Oh, fun. Oh, oh, and <laughs> there was a Thai restaurant in St. Paul. <laughs> I really missed that. <laughs> I can't remember what it was called. <laughs> well, we love going out for Thai. And going, <laughs> if you think of it, let us know. I think it might be gone. It was, this was like 25 years ago. Oh. Do you have any other famous fans that you're aware of other than Jenna? I think, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> Very happy with Jenna. Wonderful. Oh. So thinking back to the book and, um, you know, sometimes I think a lot about the the mother-daughter relationship and in a lot of the reviews of your books, that mother-daughter relationship has been so important. How has your relationship, just relationships within your family influenced the different stories? So I touched on this um, earlier in our conversation. Um, I think I couldn't write the story. Um, maybe someone else could have, but I think I couldn't have written the story until I had daughters of my own. I feel like I needed the perspective, not just of a daughter, but also of a mother. Um, it's, I mean, it's definitely a, a relationship I spend a lot of time thinking about just because both being a daughter and being a mother are so like, just so like prominent in my life. You know, they're just, they're, they're, those attachments are hugely important to me. Um, and yeah, I, there, I don't, um, I don't know. I think maybe that was part of why I couldn't write this as a memoir because I didn't have, I didn't have children of my own. I didn't, I mean, you can, you know, as a mother, you just can sort of part of the battle is pushing away some of the like scarier feelings about like bad things happen. You know what I mean? So that's, it's just easier to access when you have your own kids and you know, you're, you're constantly, there's like a, you know, your kids are growing up and they're constantly moving a little bit farther away from you. And that's just, it's really easy to access that, but like the joy and heartbreak of that. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I can absolutely see this book adapted for the screen. Not unlike Kristen Hanna's <laughs> The Nightingale is finally seeing a deserved movie adaptation later this year. Right. Has there been any talk for SFM or um, for Send For Me or any of your other previous novels? And would no. you be open to that? I would be open to that, of course. Like I lined that at night, can, you know, quietly casting my books as movies. But no, there hasn't been any conversation about that, really. 
<laughs> so we'll 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 try to do what we can. Get that. Yeah. Forward. Get your production company. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wonderful. Um, dream casting. Hmm. So so who have you been dream casting into this book? I feel like Natalie Portman would be would would have a role in the movie. I'm not sure, you know. I she guess I'd be a library her. supporter. Oh, there you there you go. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> My Ooh. friend in my my friend in Minneapolis used to joke that um, like years ago when it was still a memoir, she's like, "Some they're they're gonna make this into a movie and and they're gonna cast Meryl Streep as the hand that's writing." We so like for years we like we have we still joke about the hand, <laughs> but I don't actually think Meryl Streep would be the hand. <laughs> so, are you working on anything at present you would like to share with your readers? I am just right now just taking notes. I have a couple of baby ideas, kind of pecking their way out, but nothing I feel like I could even articulate yet. Mm. Well, good to hear. So we're looking, hoping, <laughs> glad to hear that after this book, you didn't say, no, I'm not a writer Done. anymore. I'm not a writer. I did say that, but <laughs> trying not to. <laughs> I um, hope that it will be less than 25 years before my next one comes out. And focusing hopefully more on contemporary fiction again, or did you catch the historical bug? kind of like the, I really love, like I said, I really love doing the research. And um, so maybe historical fiction, I feel like it is a little like, like maybe it was always in my toolbox, but I really used it this time. And I feel like I'm going to take it out again. Awesome. That's a non-answer. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Can't tell you. <laughs> I'm keeping my secrets. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> Um, as you were dealing, looking with your research and archivists, were they receptive to your request for research? When I had specific questions, I reached out to people I knew, or not necessarily people I knew, but like I have, like my niece works at the Holocaust Museum, so I used her as a resource, and she connected me with somebody, and my husband is an English professor at UWM, so he knew people in the history department, so it was more like I had people to rely on for like, like some granular um, questions about historical veracity and they everybody was so happy to help me and so delighted oh wonderful they're not, they're, they're, you know that's a group of they're like you know they love history so they were really thrilled to help with to it you know without without exception um so as a another question do you and your husband beta read each other's stuff or who um, are your beta readers so i have he i'm like a little nervous to show him my work until it's pretty good or, you know, or until I feel pretty good about it um, because I take his suggestions to heart. And so if he says, like, if he scratches his face, I'll be like, what didn't you like? You know? <laughs> so he, I wait till later in the game to um, let him or ask him to read my stuff. Um, and then I, I'm in a writing group here that is just phenomenal. And so they're really the only ones who, who they have like, you know, unlimited access to the, inner workings of my skull. I mean, so they're the ones who read it page by page and who talk me through it. And so that's like just a few other people. And then when it gets to a point where I'm willing to give it to my husband, I, I give it to a few other people. Mostly people from back from the University of Minnesota who are reliable, wonderful critics. So you touched on this a little bit earlier, but what advice do you have for a newbie writer? And in particular, a newbie writer looking at MFA programs and writer clubs at this moment. Um, my husband and I were just talking about that earlier today because he is um, he is 
coordinating the creative writing program here. Um, it's so, I really loved my time at the University of Minnesota because like I said before, it was just such a, an uncluttered time and space to write. So I know people have different opinions about MFA programs, but I am a huge fan. It was just like, it's such a gift to have that time. It's really nice to have funding because um, writers tend not to be, you know, tend not to make a ton of money. So it's really nice not to go into debt. Um, and so I, I am a huge advocate of MFA programs if that's something you can swing. Um, and advice, I don't know, I like I said, I try to give myself a break if I can't write every day and just live in the world like a writer, take lots of notes. I tell this to my kids, but to me too, like look up from your phone, you know, pay attention to the world eavesdrop on conversations and just, you know, I, I read a couple of years ago that Alice Monroe retired, you know, from being a writer and, oh, she's a huge influence back to that question, but she retired. And I remember thinking at the time, like, what does that mean? How do you retire? Like, I guess you don't write anymore, but I think, um, I remember thinking at the time, oh, she's probably just like taking a breath and like not being so like not living in, in not living in two minds at once, you know, like she's probably like, I think being a writer can be kind of, um, it can be kind of, it can be a little tiring to live in the world that way, to live as a person in the world and also a writer in the world. But I think it's really important for writers to be constantly paying attention. Wow. So does a best-selling author seek her own blurbs or did, does your, <laughs> did your publicist arrange that at all? And were there so positive... Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, I um, that's kind of a collaborative effort. You know, the the um, my agent and my editor and I would come together, and you know, they would say, "Do you do you know anybody who might be willing?" And um, Christina Baker Klein is someone I've been friends with for a long time, so she she gave me a blurb. But then they, I didn't really know historical fiction, so they found the other the other blurbs. Just you know, I think they sent it out to more many more people than actually ended up blurbing the book. It's kind of a it's kind of, you know, everybody kind of comes together to see who will read it and who would make the most sense to blurb it. Oh, fun. Was there any positive reactions that made you really happy? Any positive, any positive, um, like blurbs or other things that popped up? I mean, people are so generous. And so every blurb was just like amazing and wonderful. And, you know, I always understand when, if people can't do it, but the ones who do, I'm just so grateful. Oh, wow. Do you get to blurb people too? Yeah, <laughs> I get a lot of um, I get a lot of manuscripts that are you know six months away from being published. Oh, fun! Fun. I always love getting those advanced reader copies. It's like, ooh, yeah. me first. I know, <laughs> but not that early. <laughs> I know it's the nerdiest thing. It's like, oh, what a I got a present in the mail. <laughs> the <a> book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, publishers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how fun! So, um, so. I think we asked you this, we may have asked you this already. Um, what are you reading now? Oh yeah, well, so like I said, I have an upstairs book and a downstairs book. And so, so I'm, I'm, I'm almost done with Monogamy by Sue Miller. And, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, I don't know what I'm gonna start next. I feel like, um, I, oh, I have um, The Yellow Bird Sings by Jennifer Rossner. And I think I'm gonna do an event with her. She also blurred my book. So I've been meaning, that's been on my list. So I think that might be next. I'm excited oh. about that one. <laughs> and then this is my friend's book and it's coming out March 9th and I'm doing an event with her 
It's called American Betia. Does it look backwards to you? I don't understand Zoom. It does Which not. One? Mine look oh, okay. backwards to me, but, but look this one looks good. <laughs> so it's a Y, I love reading YA and I love the author of this book. And so I'm, I'm well, I just have to, I've re, I have read it, but I'm gonna go, that's, that's my, my current book. Well, I'm in a YA book club. We'll have to grab that one next. Yeah, American do. Betia. So one last, um, one last question from the group. After so many years with your family stories, are you sad to be done telling the story or are you ready to move on to something less personal? Yes. <laughs> I'm that's such a good question. And I kind of feel like, um, you know, writers are obsessive people generally. And I sort of feel like I've like exercised this story in a way. And um, I, so I feel a little bereft and a little empty, which is probably good. You know, that means there's space for something else to like take root. Um, but so yeah, I'm, I'm glad to, I'm glad that it's out there and I'm glad I'm finished telling it. And I also am sort of like, okay, we'll just, I'll just stand in the sunshine and wait for what's gonna come next. That's not how it happens. <laughs> but I am, I am looking forward to moving on to another story. Wow. Well, we're just wrapping up now. Are you, any final words for our viewers out there? I just gave you the image of me standing in the sunshine, waiting for inspiration. <laughs> can that, I think that's my, <laughs> that can be our guiding light out of, out. <laughs> Lauren, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us this evening and for for just being gracious and wonderful and for creating these amazing stories that we get to read. I just, oh, thank you. Um, I told you this when we first met, but that, that first couple pages, they grabbed me and pulled me in and I just loved the whole story and the whole ride. So thank you thank so you much. So. That wraps up our Anoka County library event with Lauren Fox. Make sure to catch our next club book event with John Moe. John Moe is one of Minnesota's best-known radio and podcast personalities. His new book, The Hilarious World of Depression, and beloved podcast of the same name, aims to dispel the societal stigma and entrenched stereotypes about clinical depression. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.